Hey everybody, just a quick announcement before we start the show. If you like what we're doing here and want to throw us some support, Non-Toxic Fanboys is now on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash nontoxicfanboys, where depending on your support level, you can vote on the topic of our next show, get early access to each new episode, get a patron-exclusive behind-the-scenes podcast about our creative process, or even submit topics to be covered on the show. All the details can be found at patreon.com slash nontoxicfanboys. We know not everybody is in a place where they can contribute to a show like this. Please don't feel obligated to do so. But if you are so inclined, then please visit us at patreon.com slash nontoxicfanboys and see if any of our support tiers appeal to you. And now, on with the show. Cue the music! Hello listeners, welcome to the Non-Toxic Fanboys, where, as always, the name of the show is aspirational. I am Glenn Butler, and it is National Film Score Day. I am, of course, joined by my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, how are we celebrating National Film Score Day this year? Well, much like we celebrated last year, this year we're going to commemorate National Film Score Day by talking about scores that are good. This year, the Oscar ceremony isn't until long after the National Film Score Day, thanks to gestures broadly. So we're going to celebrate today by doing what's usually the second half of our Oscar show and talking about all of the 2020 scores that we actually genuinely liked. Now, the first question I have, if we're going to discuss film scores from 2020, is were there any films in 2020? After a fashion, I mean, Netflix had a banner year, like three other people launched new streaming services, I think. Yeah, there were a lot of premieres on HBO Max. Yeah, I think HBO Max existed before, but it suddenly became a thing this year. Paramount Plus is a thing now. Apple TV Plus is a thing now. Quibi became a thing and then stopped being a thing all within 2020. Yeah, I don't think there were any major motion picture premieres on Quibi. I could be wrong. I'm out of the loop a little bit. None of the Quibi shows had a simultaneous run in a Los Angeles movie theater to qualify for Oscar consideration? I mean, I'm not Leonard Maltin over here, so, I mean, it could be, but I doubt it. Did they release any score albums for any of the Quibi shows? That would be interesting. Uh, I can't actually name a Quibi show off the top of my head to look it up for you. (laughs) Never fear. The multinational megacorporations who own our pop culture found a way to keep selling us stuff, even amidst the pandemic. Did you know Quibi did a reboot of The Fugitive? Really? Unless this is something entirely unrelated called The Fugitive. No. No, it's The Fugitive. The series premiered August 3rd, 2020. Episodes are six to nine minutes long. Wasn't Quibi, like, the whole point of the thing was that you could watch it on your phone? I mean, you can watch any of these streaming services on your phone, right? But I'm just, I'm picturing the radical recontextualization involved. Hey, everybody, it's your boy, Dr. Kimball. I can't tell you where I am this week. You know why. (laughs) 
You know, when you're on the run from the law because you've been wrongfully accused of murdering your wife, you're going to want to hide your IP address from people trying to track you. That's why you need this week's sponsor, NordVPN. You know, if you're on the run after being falsely accused of murder, you don't have time to make all your own meals. (laughs) You know, most food delivery services have problems delivering to people with no fixed address, but not this week's sponsor. I'm not sure Simply Safe would want to hire Dr. Kimball to be their spokesperson, though. (laughs) Unless, you know why my wife was murdered? I didn't have Simply Safe. I've been wrongfully accused of committing a murder, but if you want to protect your loved ones from people who might actually commit murder... I'm on the run from the long arm of the law, so I don't have time to wait in line at the post office. <laughs> Non-Toxic Fanboys, the podcast, is open to sponsorship by any of these fine, fine products, by the way. We'll sell your stamps, we'll sell your mattress. The fugitive on Quibi included Kiefer Sutherland as a detective. Did he, like, torture people looking for the doctor? I mean, probably. Tommy Lee Jones would never. Well. (laughs) Anyway, should we do a show? Well, is it that what we're doing? Episode 55, making jokes about the Quibi reboot of The Fugitive? (laughs) Well, who bought Quibi? If we wanted to do an episode on The Fugitive, where would we watch it? I believe that Roku bought out all of the content from the defunct husk of what used to be Quibi. So, wait, does Roku have its own streaming service now, too? Is there a corporation that doesn't have a streaming service? I was going to say one of the broadcast networks, but I think they all have them. Does ABC have its own dedicated streaming service? I mean, ABC is Disney. Okay, good point. So they have two. Yeah, exactly. What about Fox? Does Fox have its own streaming service? Hmm. There's Paramount Plus, there's Peacock, there's Hulu and Disney Plus. Is Fox left all alone with only a website and not a dedicated streaming platform? Well, that depends on one's definitions, right? I mean, I'm sure you can get the Fox streaming app on your Roku or Fire device. But we're not here to advertise them. What are we here to advertise? We are here to advertise three fine, fine film scores that we've decided to talk about today. So should we get right to it? I think it's far too late for us to get right to anything. But yes, let's actually begin the show. Cool. Let's talk about Enola Holmes by Daniel Pemberton.
I kind of feel like I discovered Daniel Pemberton, even though the place that I discovered him was on someone else's list of the best scores of 2017. But I was the first one to talk about him on the show, so I feel like I discovered him. Well, you definitely discovered him before I did. This score is kind of amazing to me, because the whole thing about King Arthur Legend of the Sword is that that was an interesting and fun score that had, like, no themes or even really melodies. And it was a constant revelation to me that I actually enjoyed it despite that. This Enola Holmes score is very heavily melodic and built primarily on two main themes that are used throughout the score. This Enola Holmes score is a bloody delight. It is. I think I said at one point in my notes, some variation of, you know, I'm trying to take notes on each track so that I have something to talk about. And at some point I just said, I've run out of ways to say this is a fun and entirely pleasant listen with some really interesting use of its themes. Because I made that comment on like five different tracks. The theme the score is most built on, which I think represents like the mystery they're investigating. Or maybe it represents Enola Holmes' mother, or maybe it's a mystery related to the mother. I don't know. I didn't watch the movie. Uh, She is trying to find her mother, yes. Oh, she's trying to find her. So her mother is the mystery. Yes. That theme goes through some really wide variations, because it starts out as this, like, really, like, eerie, mysterious thing... But then they keep using it in, like, action scenes and stuff where it becomes, like, tension-ridden, and at one point it becomes this, like, action-romp gallop of a melody. one piece toward the end of the score where that mystery theme comes in in its gallop form and then it intensifies and intensifies further
it is fantastic just the way it ramps up and up very very thrilling yeah this score was kind of a revelation to me because like i said the the primary defining characteristic of the last pemberton score we talked about was that it had no themes or melodies and this is heavily melodic driven primarily by two main themes and it's just fun it's just a lot of fun it's the kind of score where, as you say, it has two primary ideas that it's built on, and a couple others that are more minor ideas, but those two, especially that mystery theme, are returned to over and over again in a way that stays fresh throughout the entire thing, because they're being used in different ways, they're being mixed up in different ways, they're being combined or taken apart. The main theme has a particular rhythm that it's associated with at the beginning of the score, and that rhythm comes back without the actual melody of the theme a couple of times to kind of imply its presence. And I always appreciate the subtlety you can find sometimes when there are different elements of a theme that can be taken apart and recombined and brought back in different combinations to connote different things. And just the ways that he varies those two themes to keep them fresh over the course of the entire score is just very, very well done. I was really worried that this score wouldn't hold up on a second listen, because I've listened to around 50 scores from 2020 looking for good stuff to talk about on this show. And a lot of the scores, when I went back to do a second listen, it's like, Okay, this was only good in comparison to all the rest of the crap that I was sifting through. It's not actually good, good. And I was really very fearful that that would turn out to be the case for this score, but it is completely not. It holds up. I've listened to it probably four or five times now, and eventually I got to a point where I had no new observations to make note of, but it never gets old, even on repeated listenings. It's still just a really good listen. Also, congratulations to Daniel Pemberton on his Oscar nomination for not this score. No, for something else entirely. Not even for a score. No. But, you know, you take what you can get. (laughs) Tune in next year when I can refer to Oscar winner Daniel Pemberton. Your discovery, Oscar winner Daniel Pemberton. I discovered future Oscar winner Daniel Pemberton. And where did you discover him? On a major Hollywood motion picture. I discovered him on someone else's compilation of the best scores of 2017. Well, that's where all the greats come from. This really is kind of outside the scope of most of the other Pemberton scores that I've listened to. He's very eclectic. He's very inventive in terms of the methods of creating his scores and a lot of the instrumentation and things like that. And the one piece from Enola Holmes that I think really spoke to that was one track that uses ticking clocks and the sounds of people stepping on a wooden floor and kind of uses those sounds as the basis of the rhythm of that piece. That is the sort of inventiveness that I expect to find.
I first heard that and I thought, there's the guy who scored into the Spider-Verse. I realized listening to this as well that I think at some point the general sound of a Sherlock Holmes score for the 21st century is more or less decided on. There are stylistic similarities between this and Hans Zimmer's score for the first Robert Downey Jr. Holmes movie and David Arnold and Michael Price's work on the Sherlock TV show. There are certain elements that seem to have been agreed on in general. What are those elements? Uh, The way that the faster-paced pieces are structured, the way that the strings are used to keep that pace up, I think is very similar between the three different takes on the genre. But of course, the really strong thematic basis that we've been talking about for the most part is entirely Pemberton's own here. Let's move on to our next score, Fanny Lie Delivered by Thomas Clay. I Delivered is a feminist, Puritan, home invasion, folk horror film set in Cromwell's England. I don't believe I've ever heard all of those descriptions applied to the same thing before. Right? It sounds, frankly, kind of amazing. This film wound up being scored by its director after he had difficulties finding a composer who was a good fit for what he wanted for his feminist Puritan home invasion folk horror film set in Cromwell's England, who could also be hired within the budget befitting such a film, which you might imagine how that might happen. He didn't get a half a billion dollars from Disney to film this? No, I don't think so. I don't think this is kicking off the Fanny Lie cinematic universe. Among films scored by their own directors, the main example that springs to mind is Clint Eastwood, which I don't think has been entirely successful on an artistic basis, but that's my opinion. But this score, for me, kind of came out of nowhere and bowled me over. It also has a couple of fairly strong themes, but one thing that really stands out to me is the instrumentation that's used. All of the instruments would have existed at the time of the setting of the film, with maybe a little leeway. And there are instruments that are tied to characters to better lend that sense of identity. So as you listen to the score, there are instruments that might impose themselves on a cue or wax or wane, kind of conveying that sense of instrumental as well as melodic identity. There are also several very compelling readings of the main theme. There's a secondary theme for the sheriff who shows up partway through the film with a sort of staccato, regimented march. Thank you. 
that later on is twisted into this demented, orgiastic frenzy that is, in my opinion, the best of horror movie scoring. There are a lot of standard scoring tropes in a lot of horror films, but when the rare horror score comes along that really speaks to me, it's because it has that basis that then gets twisted, that then gets that sort of big damn horror scoring imposed on it, that builds that contrast, you know? And I think that a couple of tracks that just feature this, like, demented march and this twisted, twisted material in and among other cheerful or mournful readings of the main theme just really build both sides of that and play them off of each other in a way that really, really appeals to me. What did you think? The score confounds me. Because it won't stick in my head barely at all. Like, whenever I try to think back on this score, I go through this process where I'm like, I can barely remember anything about this score. It must have been very forgettable. It must be a mediocre jumble of atmospheric dreck. And that's why I don't remember anything. And then every time I listen to it again, I'm like, holy shit, this is so much better. What the fuck? And that's happened to me on, like, four listens. (laughs) Like, I think back on my previous three listens and have, like, barely any memory of it, and so I assume it must just be a bunch of undifferentiated dreck that formed no impression on me whatsoever, and then I listen to it the fourth time and go, holy shit, this is so good! I don't know why it does that! I really like the way they build the theme up in a few tracks where they like really harp on it and intensify it and build it up. And they don't just like build it up to a point and then cut it off. They build it up and let it climax and let it ebb a bit, which not enough scores really do. appreciated that i really liked those tracks the sort of march of impending doom that they use for the sheriff that's really good it evokes the feeling really well and for one final march the score ends 
with a march version of Ode to Joy on period instruments from about 75 years before Ode to Joy was written. It was very reminiscent of one of the Ennio Morricone spaghetti westerns, except it's on 18th century instruments and it's Ode to Joy. That's another set of descriptors that you don't expect to come together. But when they do, somehow it's amazing. Yeah, that has, like, no connection to any of the rest of the score, but it's just a really fun track. I mean, I've always been a fan of Ode to Joy to begin with, so it's sort of built to appeal to me, but yeah, that's a great track. Maybe it makes sense in context. Maybe we should see some of these movies. I would really look forward to whatever Thomas Clay could come up with for his next film, because I think this is very, very promising. Scott... You know how these score shows go. We've got to talk about Zimmer now. Oh, fuck. Really? On the good show? On the good show. On the show specifically dedicated to scores that are good, you want to bring up the great Satan Zimmer, as you named him on our recent Patreon-exclusive show? On the show specifically dedicated to things that are good, we've got to talk about Hans Zimmer... Let me just say this. 2020 was a hell of a year, and it may well be the year when reality completely shattered and fell to pieces. Because in the year 2020, the great Satan Hans Zimmer wrote the best movie score of the year.
has this been for 20 years? That's what I've been saying! The last score he wrote that was this good was fucking Gladiator! (laughs) We're talking, of course, about the score to Wonder Woman 1984 by the formerly great Satan, Hans Zimmer. Is he demoted to minor Satan? I don't understand why he spent 20 years writing Dunkirk (laughs) if he was still capable of this! You remember... We covered the score to the first Wonder Woman movie. We cited that as one of the good, enjoyable scores of its year. And I near had a meltdown when you told me that Hans Zimmer was going to be scoring the sequel. (laughs) I think a lot of people did, yeah. And holy shit, it's the best score of the year. It's not even a competition. This is just, this is awesome. It's pretty awesome, honestly. It's giant, it's bold, it's thematic, it's melodic, it's thematic. There's a couple of themes he uses for Wonder Woman, there's a love theme, there's a villain theme for the Donald Trump character. I don't know what else to say about this score. It's just awesome. And it's fucking revelatory, considering it's coming from the same person who scored Dunkirk! (laughs) How does the person who wrote a two-note theme for Batman come up with this? I'm so old, I remember when Zimmer said he was done with superheroes. I celebrated. And then he did an X-Men film, and I listened to that album, I think, because it fell entirely out of my mind, and my prevailing thought was, why? Like... (laughs) Why? Why? But this... It's astounding. I know you've been communicating this fairly well without actually saying so, but it is astounding. It's got the entire Zimmer box of tricks, right? But they're in context. It's got the Zimmer box of tricks from 20 years ago when he was writing good scores. He hasn't used this box of tricks in a decade or two. I mean... He squared the circle of using the Wonder Woman theme that he wrote for Batman v Superman in a more melodic, thematic superhero score. Yes, thank you for reminding me. If you remember during our discussion of the 2017 Wonder Woman score, we lamented the impossible task of trying to integrate that Wonder Woman theme originally played on a very screechy electric cello and trying to integrate that into a more standard-issue orchestral superhero score. We lamented that as an absolutely impossible task and spent quite a few minutes commiserating with Rupert Gregson Williams that he was even forced to attempt it. Well, fuck if Hans Zimmer didn't do it. Hans Zimmer, he's the one that managed to do it. He's the one that took that theme and reorchestrated it and took pieces out of it to use to build off of and integrated it seamlessly into a giant, epic, awesome superhero theme. Exactly, exactly. He took the theme as it was, took it apart into its constituent elements. Okay, what does it have? It has this screeching electric cello line, which is the main thing that your focus goes to, or at least mine does. 
and it has this intense backbeat, this intense rhythm. And he takes that rhythm, and that particular identifiable rhythm absolutely permeates this score. It is everywhere. Yes. So you have this identifiable rhythm that you already know, you already identify with Wonder Woman. You have the other part of the theme that was on the electric cello in the standard older arrangement. And you take that sort of wavering quality to that melody and you turn it into an ostinato that is used over that rhythm, that strong backbeat, right? And then you put a superhero theme on top of it. And suddenly, it's not something that's fast-paced and up-tempo and hits your kind of hindbrain to create a sense of excitement, but is ultimately a little empty. No, it's a big, thrilling piece of superhero music. Because it has those elements. It has that pace, it has that rhythm, it has that beat that's hitting all, all those hindbrain qualities. And it has the melody laid over top. Yeah, that's the thing. He doesn't just use the rhythm. He uses all of it, but he builds to it using that background beat to build other stuff off of. So that when that background beat comes back, it's very familiar. And he reorchestrates the primary tune of the theme so that it's not as jarringly discordant when compared to the rest of the score. It's really rather brilliant. It's really incredibly well done and well integrated, and it all sounds of a piece, and nothing stands out as not fitting in with each other the way it so very, very blatantly did in the Rupert Gregson Williams 2017 Wonder Woman score. I was completely amazed by this within about 30 seconds of starting the album. Yes. Or starting the film. We actually watched this one. Yeah, you wanted to watch this. Yeah, because my dominant impression of the older Wonder Woman theme, the one from Batman v Superman, was that it was dour. That was the one descriptor that kept occurring to me, like whenever I heard it in, in anything else. It, it, it just seemed dour. And instantly... Introduction to the film, track one on the album. That same rhythm is there, that ostinato element taken from the cello line from the original theme is there, but it's in a major mode, it's celebratory, it's upbeat, it's completely turned on its head for this opening sequence on Themyscira, which just amazed me instantly. Within seconds of starting the score, it's completely recontextualized, it's completely tailored for the scene that it's in. It's not overbearing on top of it. It's not, like, completely unrelated material because this isn't the kind of thing that that theme can do. It's what it can do now. I may have said this already, but I can't get over how brilliantly he builds other themes off that same rhythm. Yes. Off that same beat pattern. So that when it comes back and he uses the old Wonder Woman theme over it, it all feels of a piece. It all feels continuous because it's the same backup beat that his other stuff is built off of. It's all seamlessly strung together so that it all feels like one united thing. It's it's amazing. I hate to keep pumping up this score by badmouthing the other DC scores, but... Do you remember Danny Elfman's Justice League? 
I remember not liking it. I don't remember it well enough to have an independent opinion now, but I remember what my opinion was the one time I listened to it back in like 2016 or so. I was very curious to see what Elfman would do with the Wonder Woman theme is the most relevant thing uh, to what we're talking about. And there's a moment in that score where he has this big brass version of that theme, and it just sounds farcical. was ludicrous like the way that it was recontextualized and transposed into the brass in that context in wonder woman 1984 during the car chase in egypt there is a moment where again that rhythm is pounding but it's not just pounding because it's something that's been used in different ways throughout the score it actually means something that rhythm is going and the tension is rising and the Batman v Superman Wonder Woman theme blares out on the brass, and it's not a farce, it's not ludicrous, it is thrilling. A moment of catharsis in the middle of this tense action sequence. It is amazing. Taking that theme, given how badly it fit in everywhere else it had ever been used, and managing to work it seamlessly into this score, and have it sound of a piece, and have it sound good, and have it sound awesome, like, that's the greatest achievement of any composer this year. That moment, I think, works as amazingly well as it does, because the entire score isn't hanging on 15 seconds of a theme that's just a beat and a kind of wavering ostinato-y bit. That's one element that asserts itself, 
at that point in the film, at that point in the score. But all of the different pieces of that are used in a more extensive way, in a more contextualized way, in a more thoughtful way throughout the score. And the same is true of the main Wonder Woman theme that Zimmer wrote for this score that gets laid on top of those elements in other parts of the score. Well, there's a couple of different pieces he uses for Wonder Woman in this score. Like, there's the first theme that shows up in the first track that is built on that same rhythm and beat as the old Wonder Woman theme, and that's really good. But there's also this sort of celebratory fanfare that he uses a lot, that at some point in my notes I started calling Wonder Woman Triumphant. And that is also just, it's so good whenever he uses it. It just ramps up the excitement and lets it like just crest and plateau. And so many of these scores we listen to, they have like a build up and a build up and a build up. And then they just like cut off. Like we've built up to a moment and we're at the moment and the score just like cuts off there. And so few of the scores get to, like, hit the peak and sustain the peak and crest and plateau. And Zimmer does that brilliantly with that celebratory fanfare that he puts on the end of some sequences. that this is a multi-thematic score as well. There is a theme for the villain of the piece, there's a love theme, there is some material for the secondary villain of the piece, for uh, the cheetah. Yeah, I didn't quite pick up on the cheetah material. It's the least used of all of the different themes, at least on the CD version. So I didn't quite pick up on that. Like, I wasn't sure what elements of the track were emblematic of the Cheetah character and what was just there to build the rest of the track. The main thing that stood out to me in terms of the Cheetah material is this almost dissonant horn blare, these four notes that echo a little bit and that just kind of impose themselves on the music, especially during the uh, confrontation toward the end of the film. Once, spoilers, I guess. She's totally become the cheetah and isn't just Kristen Wiig. Once she's become a character from Cats? Yes, once she's become Jennifer Hudson. (laughs) The thing that stood out to me the last time I listened to this score, that also, again, kind of bowled me over as just such an intelligent way to handle the material, is this. The new Wonder Woman theme is built on a couple of four-note sequences. One of the four-note segments from the main Wonder Woman theme is taken out of that 
made dissonant, made into a horn blare, and that's the identifying element for the cheetah. Because the cheetah became the cheetah because she wished she could be like Diana. Really? I never picked up on that. Listen to them side by side. I'm pretty sure it's the same sequence of notes. Also, the love theme is built directly out of that same segment of the main Wonder Woman theme, because Diana wished Steve back into existence. Those other elements of the score grow directly out of the Wonder Woman theme, the same way that the story elements do in the film. It's such an intelligent way to build all of that material. It's amazing. They did put out a supplemental album with Zimmer's quote-unquote sketchbook for the score, which he's done for a few scores. I know he did it for X-Men. I know he did it for Man of Steel. It's not absolutely essential, but there are more kind of centrally collected tracks for Cheetah, for the Black Gold material that kind of make that cohere a little better. So I was able to go back to the main score and kind of get those elements a little more. But yeah, I think that that is exactly the dynamic that those themes have with each other. It's amazing. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that before because... I always had trouble picking out exactly which part of the cheetah material was the cheetah theme, I suppose. Yeah, well, the confrontation with cheetah toward the end of the film does have more of those more typical Zimmer action movie elements from the last 10-15 years. The big imposing chords, the kind of massive backing strings that threaten to kind of overwhelm everything. But in this case, it's not the whole score. It's a sequence, it's an element that means something. So, you know, where something like that gets to be too much in a score that doesn't have the other thematic elements, here it has a purpose, and it's deployed with a purpose. But it can be a little jumbled when all of those things are happening at once. Yeah, that was the one criticism I really did have of this score, is that as it got on and as it got closer to the climax and as it got to, like, the big final action scenes, it did sort of start to trend away from the boldly thematic material and sort of regress to the mean of the kind of action-y filler that a lot of scores are filled with these days. Like, it didn't do that completely, and it was only in a couple of tracks, but... If I had to make a criticism of this score, that would be my main criticism, that when it came to the big superhero fight toward the end of the movie, like you said earlier, the fight they had in Egypt was driven completely by the various Wonder Woman themes, the old one and the new stuff that he did for this movie and integrating everything together. That action sequence was heavily thematic driven, but by the time you get to the end where she fights with the cheetah, it's less so and trending more towards sort of just generic action stuff rather than the thematically driven material from earlier in the movie. There is some of that, yeah. I think those sequences toward the end of the score uh, became a little more compelling to me once I'd listened to the Sketchbook album and kind of sussed out the Cheetah material in particular a little more. Because like you say, on the standard album, it's not It's not entirely clear, and sometimes I have to listen to these things multiple times to get it this much anyway. But once I heard that material kind of collected together and then re-listened to the main body of the score, you know, you can discern during the sequence in the White House 
when that material comes in and during the sequence at the end of the film when that material comes in. So that became a little more clear to me. in the end sequence where Zimmer is playing off of that black gold theme a little more and then after the climax of the film when he quotes it again in more of a redemptive mode. Yeah, that black gold theme gets probably the most work. Not in terms of time, but it gets the most different use. Like the Wonder Woman material is just big and bold and exciting and awesome. But it's big and bold and exciting and awesome pretty much the first time it's used and the last time it's used and every time it's used in between. That black gold theme for the Donald Trump villain, at first it's like playful and happy... And then it sort of gets darker and more serious, and then it starts sounding sinister, and then it's the big, giant, evil villain theme, and then at the end, it is it does get like a bit of a redemptive flavor on it for the sort of denouement sequence. That theme gets the most work of doing different things and sounding different at different points in the movie. Yeah, for sure. For Wonder Woman herself... I think at the emotional climax, when she's convincing the entire world to be better, which, hashtag goals, <laughs> I think her material there is verging more on the love theme, which, because the love theme is built so closely off of her theme, maybe that is still her theme, but just putting that emotion on it reads to me like the love theme. That's kind of the spin that's put on it at that point. Yeah, I didn't listen to that Sketches album because, I mean, I was already listening to 50 different scores. It was hard enough to keep them all straight in my head. I didn't want to get confused between what was on the Sketches album versus what was in the actual score. And so I wanted to hold off on listening to that until we had done the review so I could keep it straight in my head. So, yeah, there's probably some stuff I didn't pick up on that would be more sharply defined on that album. Like I say, it's not absolutely essential, but it did help me kind of pick apart some of those elements. Also, 
There is a version of the big, bold, new Wonder Woman theme on there in the most gloriously dated synths. It's incredible. Can I ask a question? You may. Because you're sort of more plugged into the world of film scores than I am. (sighs) Not so much this year, but all right, shoot. The last track on this score is labeled as a bonus track. Everywhere I've looked includes that bonus track. Under what definition of bonus is that track a bonus track? Because I can't find anywhere where it is not part of the score. Um, it's an extra bit after the end of the film score? Uh, that's not like an iTunes exclusive or anything? It's on the YouTube playlist that the music company posted, and it's on the Amazon listing for the album. I mean, I figured if they put the thing on YouTube, it couldn't be too exclusive. That is true. Uh, Yeah, I suppose it's just kind of a bonus piece that's put on after the main body of the score. I'll say this, though. That quote-unquote bonus track is... 12 minutes of the love theme, and the love theme cannot carry 12 minutes on its own. Mm, I suppose. You want to wrap it up? I guess. Okay. That will do it for this edition of the Non-Toxic Fanboys. Happy National Film Score Day! We will be back in just a couple of weeks with our discussion of the actual Oscar nominees... We are going to be talking about James Newton Howard, we are going to be talking about Terrence Blanchard, we are going to be talking about Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, Trent Reznor, and Atticus Ross. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can find us at NontoxicFanboys on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email us at NontoxicFanboys at gmail.com. If you are so inclined, please leave us a rating and a review on your podcast platform of choice. I am at Glennybun on Twitter and Instagram. Scott is at SpectacularSco on Twitter. And you can find all of this information and the latest updates about the show on our website, nontoxicfanboys.com. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you can find all of the details about that at patreon.com slash nontoxicfanboys. In addition, I've recently been working on another podcast venture called Feeling Good For Now, where I, along with my close personal longtime friends Steve Willie and Jordan Duncan, sift through current events and pop culture to find things we can actually feel good about, for now. Then offer spectacular advice on mental health or whatever listeners write in about. You can find that at willie1313.podbean.com, that's w-i-l-l-e 1313.podbean.com, and send any and all advice questions to spectacularadvice at gmail.com. The theme music to this podcast is Discovery by Alexander Nakarada, published on filmmusic.io. Details and links to the composer can be found in this episode's description. Other music in this episode comes from the scores to Wonder Woman 1984 by Hans Zimmer, published by Water Tower Music, Enola Holmes by Daniel Pemberton, published by Sony Music, and Fanny Lie Delivered by Thomas Clay, published by Pullback Camera. Those are excerpted here for the purposes of review and critique. A full list of tracks cited is in this episode's description, and if you liked what you heard, links to buy all the soundtracks can also be found there. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.
Have we gushed about this score enough? Can we gush anymore? I mean, I'm sure we can. Ha <laughs> ha.